I didn't come to camp this year for the fellowship. Although I'm going to enjoy it. I didn't come this year because of the friends and the brothers and sisters that I would see. I didn't come this year because I thought the lessons were going to be great, which I think they are going to be. I came because it's my deep conviction that the time that we spend talking about the kingdom will inspire revolution. Nothing short of revolution. I want a revolution to take place here at camp. And I'm not talking about revolutionizing our church. I'm not talking about revolutionizing which Bible version we read or how we use it. I'm talking about revolutionizing the way that I think about the kingdom of God and allowing that to revolutionize, to dramatically change my life. I've been thinking about this theme for over a year, and I'm not sick of the word yet. And I hope by the end of this week, all of you that are here will have the same sense of excitement as I have about it, and that many of us that have been working in the scenes and planning and thinking about it have. I'm going to have you turn to Matthew chapter 6 in a moment, but I wanted to read a few verses first out of Mark chapter 5. You don't even have to turn to it if you don't want to. And he said, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man should cast seed into the ground, and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up. He knoweth not how. For the earth bringeth forth fruit of herself, first the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. But when the fruit is brought forth, immediately he put it in the sickle, because the harvest is come. I don't really know if I understand those verses. But the basic message that, that verse, those verses give, or at least one of the basic messages, is that the kingdom of God is something that is growing. It's expanding. It's getting bigger all the time. You may not notice it day by day. If you're not watching it, you may not even recognize it. But make no mistake, the kingdom of God is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That's point number one. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Beginning with verse 19. Matthew 6, 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth doth rust, neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where the thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. 
No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. I want to be a kingdom citizen. That's what I've been thinking about for more than a year. And as I've analyzed my life and looked at it, I've realized that I've held dual citizenship. I've been living in the world and dabbling in the kingdom of God. And I've discovered, to my great regret and dissatisfaction, that there is no such thing as dual citizenship. But I've tried to hang on to that idea. See, the world has a great way of sucking us in, grabbing hold of us, making us think about all these different things. When it comes to the kingdom, though, we stick our foot in the pool, we dabble. We think about it, we go to church, but we've got to change the way we've been thinking. We've got to revolutionize our thinking. We've got to be a kingdom citizen and not try for the fallacy of dual citizenship. What exactly does that mean? Well, there's a verse here that tells me something very clearly. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. If I have a singular focus on being a member of God's kingdom, I will be full of light. But if I don't, I am in utter darkness. I have to learn to take every part of my life and start looking at it through the filter of the kingdom. I've got to accept every bit of data that comes into my life and say, how can this be furtherance to the kingdom? How can this be a benefit to the kingdom? How can this be used for the kingdom? Because if I don't, then I'm satisfying myself. I'm planning for myself. I'm being distracted, and I'm letting darkness come in. I have to learn to alienate myself from the world. The world tells me every day what I should want, how I should invest, what car I should drive, the next greatest thing for my home, what kind of countertop, better sinks, better fixtures, all kinds of things. I'm being bombarded. I've got to divorce myself from those allures. The news bombards me. I'm a guy that likes politics. i got to stop liking it so much. There's stuff that comes into my head. I'll give you an example of stuff that comes into my head. I don't even want it. It's like mental trash. Tom Cruise is engaged. Big deal. But I know that fact. I even can picture his fiance. I also know he had a run-in with Matt Lauer. I don't really care for that information, but I got it. So what do I do with it? Do I turn on entertainment tonight and get the details? Do I flip through the magazine while I'm checking out at the food store because I've got a salacious desire for information? Or do I say, you know what? 
Tom Cruise is a Scientologist. Tom Cruise believes in a method of belief founded by a, name, by a guy named L. Ron Hubbard. And I know some Scientologists, and I know what it's all about. And there's some very high-level thought. It's very interesting because L. Ron Hubbard was in many ways a very insightful man, able to be able to decipher motives and thoughts and human interactions. It's an interesting technology. But you know what? It's dead. There's no life in it at all. And here's a guy that has more money and more attention than anyone could ever need, and he's heading for a direction of death. Because what he believes on, what he's holding on to, is a dead message. Sorry, Tom, it's dead. And as much as I've got information about him, if I take that knowledge and say, you know what? I can use it for the kingdom. I don't want this knowledge, but I got it. When next time someone talks about Tom Cruise, I'm going to say, you know what? That guy's got everything in the world, but in the kingdom, he's dead. 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 Scary notion. It's taking the trash and using it for the kingdom. Imagine if we took every detail that came on a day-to-day -day basis and say, instead of just absorbing it, how can I take that and use it for the kingdom? I have to do that a whole lot more because I want to be a kingdom citizen. I don't want to continue my fallacy of dual citizenship. No man can serve two masters. And here's the clincher. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. If you find yourself holding on to the kingdom of the world, guess what that means? You hate this kingdom. You despise this kingdom. Isn't that kind of disturbing? I've had to face that. Now you do too. But seek ye first, end of the chapter, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. You know what happens when you're a kingdom citizen? If you are focused and living in the kingdom, there's really nothing that can throw you for a loop. There really isn't. God says he's going to take care of you. You're a citizen of the kingdom. What can wipe you out when you know that the worst case scenario, you're dead and you're headed for the kingdom? If you want to be a citizen of the kingdom, you have to be willing to enjoy life more, be more relaxed, because that's a side benefit. That's the truth. You want to live in the world? Have those burdens. Take on that, that heavy sack on your back. I don't want it anymore. I've got to learn every day to release that from my back. Because living in the kingdom doesn't mean that life is easy. In fact, and occasionally, God says, the way to my kingdom, Tom, is down this road that's going to be kind of tough. But if I know that's the road he's chosen, I'm going to go it.
I'm going to take it. I might get bumped up. I might get bruised along the way. But if I know that's where I'm supposed to go, how can I be defeated? How can I be downtrodden? I used to think about God's kingdom as if it were a faraway land. Some place that we're all heading to someday and oh, a nice place. Peace. Lion and lamb laying down together. No more stress, no more crying. How wrong I was. You see, the kingdom of God is already here started off, I don't know exactly when, maybe with God talking to Abraham. Got more definitive when God said, here's the Ten Commandments, Moses, further defined. And then the plan was really completed when Christ sent Jesus Christ into the world to redeem mankind by giving up his life. And yet, the kingdom is still growing. I want you to imagine the kingdom of God as it descends, further enveloping the world, getting clearer every day in terms of prophecy coming true. The kingdom of God is not a faraway fantasy land. The kingdom of God is in relentless descent today. Relentless meaning it's unstoppable. It's coming whether you like it or not, whether you're ready or not. It's relentless. And it's descending. And it's going to cover everybody. Question is, what's it going to cover you with? Read out of Revelation chapter 6. Talking about the saints after the fifth seal was opened. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on the earth, on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants, also and their brethren, that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs when she is shaken of the mighty wind. And the heavens departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and the kings of the earth and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the mountains, hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains. The rulers, the rich, the powerful, the mighty, the worldly, the campers that were unsaved, the campers that didn't come this year, the poor, 
the wretched that hold on to what's in the earth. All them hid in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? The relentless descent of the kingdom culminates that day. And you'll be cloaked in one of two things. A robe or rocks. That's what it says. Sorry, the news isn't quite as rosy as you thought. But it's closer today than it was yesterday. And it keeps on coming. I read a story yesterday that I have to share with you. Most of the message so far really has related more to those of you that are believers. This story will relate to the rest of you that are unbelievers, that are here, my hope, as I speak to you personally, that this week starts in you a mighty revolution as you contemplate the benefits of this kingdom above the world and the detriments of the earthly kingdom that you're now fully naturalized citizen in. Dave Shaw was about 50 years old. Pilot, adventurer, and world-class diver. He had dove all over the world. He was from Australia originally. He was living in Hong Kong. Traveled the world. Married, had a couple kids. Loved life. Lived at large. Heard about a place called Bushman's Hole in South Africa. The third deepest underwater cave on the planet and the biggest by volume, a billion gallons of water, fresh water. When you get to Bushman's Hole in South Africa, it doesn't look like more than a pond. Small little pond full of weeds. If you dive down in Bushman's Hole, you have to go down, I think, about 20 or 30 feet, maybe, maybe more, narrow passageway. And then it opens into this enormous, dark, underwater cavern. Over 900 feet deep. Dave Shaw wanted to go to the bottom of Bushman's Cave. Put on his gear, had a team about him. You don't do a dive like that alone. Bunch of auxiliary tanks if necessary. 
He used a special rebreathing apparatus that allowed him to maximize the use of the, the air he was breathing, required less tanks, the latest, greatest equipment available. He went down to the bottom of Bushman's Hole. Didn't take too long. 10 minutes, 12 minutes, 15 minutes max. He had a light. Looked around down there. Scanned the bottom of the hole where he was. It was a large area. Just thought he'd check it out for a few minutes before he went up and spent about 10 or 12 hours slowly ascending to avoid the bends, as all you divers are well aware. After just a few moments, he was startled when he came upon the decomposed body of a man. An earlier casualty of Bushman's Hole. Dion Dreyer was 20 years old in 1994. Avid diver, not nearly as experienced as Dave Shaw, but he went there just to assist in a big dive. He wasn't down that far, maybe three to 500 feet, as I recall. All these things were happening. The divers were keeping track of each other. Before they knew it, one of the divers looked and saw a light slowly disappearing into the darkness. That was Dion. He went after him for a split second, then realized if he went after Dion, there'd be two people dead in Bushman's Hole, not just one. So he turned back. And Dion met his watery grave 900 feet down. You can't stay down there too long because as I'm told, after a number of minutes at great depths, you start to lose your perspective. They say it's like having martinis on an empty stomach. You start to lose your thought processes and you start to lose focus. If you were thinking about 10 things, all of a sudden you're thinking about 9, then 8, then 7. Then the only thing you're thinking about is one thing. And hopefully that one thing is go back up. Something happened to Dion and he paid for it with his life. So 10 years later, here was Dave Shaw with his flashlight on the mask and the skeletal remains held together by a wetsuit of Dion Dreyer. And he knelt down in this great murky depths and lifted that body, but it was stuck in the muddy bottom. The tanks that were on Don, Dion's back couldn't be, couldn't be released. After a few moments of struggle, he kept his focus. Got to go up. And so he began his tiresome, slow ascent back to the surface. When he got to the top, he made a decision. He would talk to the parents of this young man and ask them if they would like to have the body of their boy once again for proper burial. Because up until this point, they knew where he was. They put a plaque on the wall above the hole Bushman's Hole. Parents said, oh, to be able to see him again and, and give him a proper burial, that would be magnificent. So Dave Shaw made preparations. Took time, took many people. Dave Shaw's best friend, Don Shirley, would assist, would go down to about more than halfway 
to assist in the dive, and the numerous other police and other divers were there to assist. Big day came. Dave told his wife that he would call her when it was done, when in fact he lied, he was going to call her after it was done. He was going the day before he said she, he was going, so he could call her prior to her thinking he was already going. She wished him luck. And he went there with his equipment and his man and his men. And he was determined to rescue the body of Dion Dreyer. He went into the water, prepared himself, put on his wetsuit, his elaborate breathing gear, and in 11 minutes, he was 900 feet down and found the tether that he attached to Dion's body. Don Shirley went down after him to about four or 500 feet till he could see the light. And he waited. This was an intricately timed event. Everything had to go according to plan. And there were specific instructions from Shirley and Shaw that if one of both of them didn't make it back, there should be no rescue efforts at all. Leave the bodies at the bottom of Bushman's Hole, South Africa. Dave Shaw was determined. He had his tools, had his camera, tape running, flashlight in hand. Went down there to retrieve the body of Dion Dreyer. Minutes passed, then more minutes. There was some difficulty. They had a bag that they brought down, and the plan was to take Dion's body, free it from the bottom of the ocean, of the, down on the hole there, and put it in the body bag to keep it together, and then bring him up. But somehow the body got loose from the bottom of that mud. It was floating free, and he had trouble controlling it in the water. The water became more murky, and he struggled. Trouble. Minutes. More minutes. Then all of a sudden, from 400 feet up, Don Shirley noticed that the light was no longer moving. He waited as long as he could. Longer than he should have. And he settled everyone. Mission over. And he began his ascent. Took him more than 12 hours. And even then, because he was vomiting at this point and cramping, they pulled him out of the water slightly early and he spent days hospitalized. Very saddened at the knowledge next to Don, or next to Dion now, was Dave Shaw, 50 years old. Rest in peace. Late that day, or possibly it was even the next day, I don't recall, a few divers went down to retrieve the final tanks and gear that was left down there. And one of the divers got the surprise of his life when he saw hovering at the top of the cave near the hole where you could escape 
the outstretched arms of Dave Shaw. His head against the top of the cavern, dead and tethered to his body was the body of Dion Dreyer. Mission accomplished at a call. They took the helmet cam, brought it to the hospital where Don Shirley was recovering, and they played the tape. It wasn't just an audio, it wasn't just a videotape, but it had audio too, and they could hear his breath sounds as he began the arduous task of trying to get Dion's body into the sack. Minutes passed, his breathing started to get quicker and quicker. And Don knew that at this point he should have left the mission. But he knew what was going on. You see, what happened to Dave Shaw, the bottom of Bushman's Hole, was that his focus on ten things was starting to blur. And the focus got to nine things and eight things. And he knew Dave because they were best of friends. And then seven things and six things. And he knew that the final thing left on Dave Shaw's mind was not ascend and save yourself. It was the body, the body, the body. And that's how he said it. My friend outside of Christ, I'm here to tell you that there is a kingdom once again, and a king once again in relentless descent. Unstoppable. Again and again, the king descends to the bottom of the hole. And what does he find there? He finds you. Dead already, stuck in the mud, skeletal remains, no life left. But his focus is so pure and so perfect, all he can think about is your body, your body, your body. I've got to recover this body. And at the cost of his own life, he tethers you to him if you're willing. He brings you back. Far better than Dion. He brings you from death into life, into the kingdom, life everlasting, citizenship, yours for the asking. And that's the story of Bushman's Hole here tonight. The king, once again, is scavenging the bottom for corpses, for bodies. For people that are living in the world, but they're dead already, they've got no idea. Because the show is so great down there, they don't realize that the end has already happened. And miraculously, if you're willing, he brought me up also out of an horrible pit out of the miry clay and set my feet upon a rock 
and established my goings. I began with the Lord's Prayer, at least part of it, that I really had to read before I came to camp. Verse 10 in Matthew 6 says, Thy kingdom come. Period. I often read it, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, like an apostrophe there. And I kind of did that future thing again. When your kingdom comes, your will is going to be done. No, it says, thy kingdom come. It doesn't say, thy kingdom coming. It says, thy kingdom come. To me, it's a request. Thy kingdom come. And the question that I have to ask myself is, have I ever really Embrace the kingdom so much that I've been able to say that prayer with the full knowledge and the full conviction to say, Lord, thy kingdom come. Before I announce the song, a couple days ago, uh, Tom had told me that uh, he would like to visit the grave of my parents where he had never been before with, along with his three children. I hadn't been there for some time, and I have to say every time I've gone and I look at the tombstone of my dad and my mom, it's a very moving experience, not only because it brings back the memory of their lives, but my dad's name was the same as mine, John Zoig, and it's quite a moving experience to be able to look at a gravestone and see your name on it. But then Tom also then asked if we would have a prayer before we would leave. And the prayer really put into focus the perspective that we have as believers who would be faithful unto death. And he prayed also for his children, that the heritage that has been passed down to me and I in turn to our children, and his hope and prayer is for his children. It's summed up in the hymn that I'd like to have us sing in 298 of the lively hope that we have in Christ. Soon wilt thou come in glory as thine own people's king. For all thy waiting members, the jubilee to bring. 